The following podcast contains spoilers. Check the episode description to see the exact times of the segments that contain spoilers. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Vulture TV podcast. I'm Gazella Mommy and I'm here with Margaret and Matt. So this week we are going to talk about probably the biggest TV moment of the year, the finale of The Jinx. And after that, we'll talk about Community, which just came back in its sixth season, this time on Yahoo. So welcome back, Matt. Tell us about South by Southwest. Well, <laughs> it was the South by Southwest Film Festival. It was the first time I'd been in 20 years. I went, the last what? time I went was the, yeah, I know, it was the second Southwest Film Festival. And I, while I was there, I interviewed a young up-and-coming actor named Matthew McConaughey because <laughs> I was convinced he was going to be a big star on the basis of Return to Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Um, and I do go back there occasionally, but this was the first time I'd spent a lot of time downtown in a concentrated way. And boy, that city is, it is so re- different? really, really different. Yeah, it's kind of like a baby L.A., but with better Tex-Mex, you know. <laughs> yeah. What um, was it like 20 years ago? 20 years ago, it was like a co- practically like a step up from a college film festival where the, the screening venues, as I recall, were, they were like four or five, and they seemed to be scattered everywhere. They weren't all concentrated in a convention center. And I remember driving with uh, Marjorie Baumgarten, who was the film editor of the Austin Chronicle, going to see some indie film. And I feel like it might have been in a community college somewhere, and we were walking past, you know, classrooms and things. And it's definitely not like That's that now. trippy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But it was great. It was great. And God, the, the, oh, the weather. Oh, boy. Oh, it's snowing right it's... now, folks, in New York. You can't see it because this, this is audio. But oh, boy, I'm so tired of winter. So, guys, real quick, tell me, what was your favorite TV moment of the last week? Oh, fuck. What did I say I was going to say? I totally <laughs> forgot. <laughs> no, we were talking about yeah. it before. Em- no, I for- Empire oh, Empire, fight. right. <clears throat> I was particularly taken with the fight between um, Cookie and Boo Boo Kitty. Oh, yeah. Uh, that was good this television. Well, because for a second, you feel like she, Cookie was in prison, right? So she should be able to, like, beat the shit out of somebody. She was in prison right. for 17 years. Like, she knows how to beat the shit out of people, I, th- I think. Um, and so for a second, you're like, oh, like, Annika's getting in some, like, good punches. But then when she comes up behind Cookie, like, pulls her hair, and Cookie, like, flips her onto the pool table, I was like, there yeah. we go. And she's, like, choking her. It was just like, yeah, I was right. Cookie does know how to cut a bitch. Yeah. Matt? Uh, my my pick is the mine shaft sequence in this week's Justified, where Boyd Crowder, uh, the frenemy of Raylan Givens, the marshal, is trying to burrow into a bank vault and steal $10 million. And uh, things go wrong, and I got to say, I was actually in fear of Boyd's life. And not since I was a very young child have I been so suckered by a show just because it was exciting. Like, like, like they're gonna <laughs> kill, like they're gonna kill Walton Goggins with like four or five episodes to go. Like that's obviously not gonna happen. Like, but it reminded me of being a kid and watching like uh, Buck Rogers or The Six Million Dollar Man or Airwolf or something, where they do a two-parter and they make it seem like Jan Michael Vincent is going to die, and it says to be continued, and you go like. Is he going to die? But Boyd it's could like, die. No. I mean, we're at the end game for Justified. Like, Boyd could die. And then every subsequent episode is just a real-time shiva, right? <laughs> That's possible. But he's so much fun. I feel like they would kill somebody else before they killed him. And, and, and also, it just doesn't seem like the kind of show that would kill the main antagonist with, like, four weeks to go. Like, that seems more like a, a, a Mad Men kind of move. Yeah, you know? yeah. Don Draper better watch his back. Yeah. <laughs> Gazelle, did you have a favorite moment? I, I did, Margaret. Uh, my favorite moment this week was on The Americans. It's been an ongoing saga with Martha and Clark, and Martha is 
now it's now dawning on her that her husband Clark, aka Philip, she doesn't know who he is, and it's just devastating to watch. And she plays it so well. There was this New Yorker story last year called "The Spy Who Loved Me," and it, it's kind of the real life story. Of, I remember of this. that. Yeah, and that story was just so heartbreaking to read because you, this woman who who many years later finds out that her life was a lie with with the man she was with, and what makes the Martha story so compelling to me is like knowing that this actually did happen. Uh, so we have a clip from from the Jinx that we want to play, which is the moment that everyone's been talking about, basically when Robert Durst somewhat mutters his confession. And yeah, we'll go ahead and play that right now. So after this aired, it was kind of this earth-shattering moment, and it was followed by a lot of praise. But then it was that was quickly followed by a lot of questions about whether Jarecki should have turned over the evidence he had to the police and whether he had skewed with the timeline of the events. What do you think about this? I don't think anyone is under obligation to turn things over to the police unless... They have a subpoena, like a want, right? Like a reporter's job or a documentarian's job is not to do the police's work for the police. And these are crimes that were investigated, perhaps poorly, often poorly. But like Andrew Jarecki does not have, nor does anyone have an inherent obligation to participate in an investigation. Well, do we want to distinguish here between a legal obligation and a moral one? Yes. Sure. Because I, do I that. mean, I think it's, t- <laughs> yeah, it's, 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 you know, they're not legally compelled to do that, but. Uh, if I were working on a documentary film and I stumbled across what I thought was pretty compelling evidence that a guy, a guy who is probably a murderer and has gone uncaught and unprosecuted for decades, he might has have been done prosecuted. It. He was ex- you know, right, right, but he wasn't unprosecuted. He he had been prosecuted. Well, for another he had crime, been prosecuted. So like, wrong, yes, okay, like, wrong. I, I withdraw that like, word. But like that was like a unpunished, terrible, <laughs> yeah, unpunished. Yes. Here's the thing. I, I have I have had problems with Andrew Jarecki's previous work. I had issues with capturing the Freedmans for the way that it strategically withheld known facts about the case involving his family in order to create surprise for people who hadn't read about the case. And and I remember sitting there in the audience and thinking, is this – and it was presented as a revelation as if it were something that the film dug up. Right. And, and so he has done this before, and this was a much more elaborate, much more polished version of it. I think he's a superb filmmaker, and I can't deny that the, that the show was riveting, even though I'm – I question whether it needed to run as many weeks as it did. Mm-hmm. It felt a little padded at times. Um, and I also had issues with uh, the way that it feasted on Durst's obnoxious assholishness. Like, you know, yeah, that was fun to hate, but I felt like the show was rubbing our nose in that a little bit. Um, but mostly, I disagree. I just disagree with this idea that it's first and foremost a TV show. They're under no obligation to turn over that evidence to the police. And I also didn't like the way that he messed with the timeline, not because documentaries don't mess with timelines all the time. They do. But because in this case, it reminded me of like a cop corruption story where where uh, a cop frames a guy who's already guilty. Like like there were things that they did to create suspense right. that I felt were not necessary. There were things that they did to tie events together that were not tied together and I didn't see any reason for it. It did feel very unnecessary where yeah. they had a completely compelling story to tell without having to you know, add more drama into it. Right, especially because we had already had there is like a meta narrative in the show where they do talk about 
the fact that they're making a show, right? So we already have Andrew Drecke as basically like a character in the jinx. So it's not out of the question for there to have been like a brief talking head interview where he's like, so then a couple of years went by and sort of we couldn't get a hold of him. And it was a real, like it really sucked. And we were trying to edit the film and sort of keep stuff going. And we didn't want to close the door on anything. And then this came up and, well, here we go, right? Like that's not impossible. Well, and I've, I've actually gotten into some fairly heated arguments with uh, fellow critics who I respect very much, and we just have to agree to disagree on this, but there's this strain of argument on behalf of the jinx that none of the stuff matters, that what matters is this person who is who is almost certainly uh, some kind of heinous criminal uh, who's never been properly punished for it might be punished because of the evidence they gathered, and things like messing with the timeline, uh, whether they should have held on to the evidence or given it to police, all these things are irrelevant. I don't think they are irrelevant. And in fact, my big concern is that the conduct of Jarecki and his fellow filmmakers is going to become an issue in a trial should there be another one. And he mm-hmm. might walk free again because of them. That's what I'm concerned about. If they can uh, get this guy exonerated on a defense of, I killed the guy by accident and chopped him up, but that doesn't make me a murderer. What do you think some smart lawyer is going to be able to do with all of this shit? So it just kind of delegitimizes. It really does. It's like it's undoing whatever it was they hoped to do, in my opinion. I hope I'm wrong about that. I hope that if that there is some kind of new trial of some kind and uh, Durst ends up going to prison because it seems painfully obvious that he is some kind of a psychopathic monster. Right. That to me is actually the more pressing issue in terms of getting a fair trial and obviously like you know, one of the weird things about the jinx is as you watch it, you're like, God, that's like the murderiest person I've ever seen. <laughs> right? But yeah. but everyone is entitled to a fair trial. And I think one of the tough things, if you're going to prosecute him, I guess you'd have to prosecute in L.A., right, because that's where the crime occurred. Um, yes. That a lot of people have seen the show and will have deep biases about his guilt already. Right. And that the pre- presentation of facts on the show where we already know that there are presentations of facts that are fudged and massaged into a narrative have colored the opinion of a jury. Well, and we're talking about a guy whose lawyer in the in the Galveston case made a linchpin of his defense, this idea that he had f- he had fled from New York and disguised his identity and gone undercover as a woman because he was fleeing this this prosecutorial harpy who was out to get him. And this jury in Galveston actually believed that crap. If they could do that, which is a kind of a, a kind of a jiu-jitsu sort of maneuver that you just have to admire on some level, like think of what lawyers would be able to do with this. It's a gold mine. I just think it was stupid. What did you think about the aesthetics of the documentary itself? A lot of the criticism over the six episodes was about these reenactment sequences and whether they weren't being sensitive to what the subject matter is? That didn't bother me so much. Those have been a part of documentary film and television news even for a long time. And, and, I, and I feel like we have to distinguish between documentary films and journalism. And I think I've got the late Albert Mazels on the brain because I interviewed him so many times and he was such a big, important influence on me in a lot of ways. But he always distinguished between a documentary and a nonfiction film or between journalism and a nonfiction film. And he was he compared it to journalism versus new journalism where you're you're admitting bias, you're allowing your personality into it, you're putting the process of telling the story into the story and all of these other things. So that's all fine. I think the important thing is in a case that involves criminal behavior, a, are you being fair to everyone involved to the extent that you're able to and not grossly distorting the facts? And B, are you not doing anything that's going to get in the way of the justice that you claim to be so concerned with? What about the confession? Are we supposed to take that at face value? Well, yeah. Right. I mean, I think you'd, you'd have to wonder that, right? right. Like, especially given the other, like, 
casual attitude towards veracity about the rest of the movie, like, of course, you're wondering, did they edit this? Like, that'd be one question I would have. Another is like, is this really a confession or is like, we? I mean, he's a weird guy with a lot of weird mumblings. Like there is sort of a strangeness where he's playing like two kind of characters and and he's like, it's it's not (laughs) it's not that straightforward. Right. Like it is. is, I mean, it was, you know, it's. Like, I mean, it's grabby, certainly. and Well, I mean, you can't see his face. You can't see his face. And in that sense, it's almost like a Twitter confession. Like, you know how things are constantly being taken out of context on Twitter? Like, somebody will latch on to one tweet in a stream of, like, 15 or 20 and completely misinterpret the intent of it without looking at the rest of the context. And there are many sentences that he speaks in this quote-unquote confession that I think if you look at them just as a sentence, you go, well, obviously he's a murderer. Right, but I mean... But the, if you look at the ones like that a, came before and after, maybe not. Right, it seemed a little bit like, what am I going to say? I killed right. them all? And it's like, I killed them all! And it's like, right. wait, 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 wait. <laughs> yeah. That is not quite, like... I think it's possible to believe that he is he did kill these people and also this isn't exactly like a ironclad confession that, that Yeah, I just think uh maybe the documentary the documentarian as crime buster is perhaps an inadvisable idea unless you're Errol Morris. <laughs> so on a lighter note, last week we saw the return of Community, which is NBC's kind of weirdly brilliant comedy that has had a tortured existence. It has come close to cancellation time and time again, but somehow has kept surviving. And after NBC finally pulled the plug after its fifth season, Yahoo swooped in and brought it back to life. Uh, So we're back with a lot of the same cast, but we have a couple new people in play. Margaret, Matt, what did you think of this new, you know, this new community? I loved it. I'm I'm in the bag for that show. I mean, even bad community usually gives me some kind of pleasure. <laughs> I mean, even that even that Dan Harmonless season had its moments. Although, as as I said, it was kind of like a cover band that sometimes sounds like the original. Yeah. Um, but I'm but I'm glad. I'm glad they're around. I'm glad that they they're going to make it to you know six seasons in the movie, as Abbott always used to trumpet. And uh, and I loved the spirit of it. And there were some brilliant moments in those first two episodes that were sent out for review. And that and the premiere. With the collapse of the the frisbee covered roof and that sudden flashback with sweet uh, sweet emotion playing <laughs> and just little t- it's the little touches that really make that show and I just love that in the flashback it's the seventies and the guy looks like he's about forty <laughs> you know but he's dressed like a teenager it's like that's 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 understanding your show and understanding your milieu. I really got into it in the the second episode where it felt like they were kind of falling into their familiar rhythms. We have a clip we want to play right now that's of Britta finding out that her friends have been giving money to her through her parents. They're supplementing my rent, too? Mm -hmm. You make them sound like monsters, but they're actually really nice. (laughs) Well, they are! My parents are horrible people. You're being dramatic. Oh, yeah. That's what people say when they take your soul and they rip it out of your chest and they shove it in your mouth. You know, Dan Harmon recently said in an interview with Vulture that network TV has kind of become a little bit more receptive to weird comedy. Do you think that if Community had started today, it would have had a better chance at being a a success? Possibly. I don't know, though, because the thing is, um, I don't really see any 
compelling reason why that show couldn't have made it on TV in some form. I feel like maybe it was just not right for the NBC comedy block. Right, which doesn't exist now, right? So if you were going to launch Community now, I have no idea what you'd partner it with, right? Like, it made certain sense to partner it with 30 Rock, right? Like, those shows seem compatible. If you're a fan of one, you would conceivably be a fan of the other, right? So, like... But now, what are you going to put community with on NBC? Well, and also there was, I I feel like the reason why audiences by and large resisted community, like popular audiences, it's not because of the the content or the style or anything. It's just because Dan Harmon's sensibility is so, it's so out there. It's it's like, it's not a matter of the content or or the storytelling or anything else. It's, It's the way that his brain just zigzags around the way that Robin Williams' brain used to. And, and that's something where you either like it or you don't. And for that reason, I've always thought that maybe it would have been better off somewhere like, uh, I don't know, on cable, I guess. I don't know. I mean, I sort of, I like the parts of Community where it felt like it was really pushing against, like, the constraints right. of a yeah. sitcom, right? And that's, like, so much of what the show is, is this, like, subverting sitcom norms and acknowledging them, but also making fun of them yeah. and using them and sort of wink-winking at, at how they all operate. And I think if you're on HBO or FX or Showtime or something, that constraint isn't there. And so you have less of a structure to subvert in the first place. Dan I, Harmon kind of ad- addressed this in the interview as well, where he was, people have been asking him, you know, it's, are there less rules now that you're on Yahoo? And he's kind of like, yes and no, but they're kind of creating the rules now, or they're kind of... it installing the rules because they're they know that they need them so it's kind of like self-imposed rulemaking which i think that was sort of the backbone of that first episode Mm -hmm. you know this idea of like the resisting order resisting the rules resisting procedure but then eventually realizing that there's a reason why we need them exactly i did miss troy i will say as much as i liked these episodes i do genuinely think the show is poor for not having Donald Glover anymore. Yeah, that's probably true. And I almost kind of miss Pierce because he he gave the thing a, a jolt of ugly energy that I thought was interesting. What do you think of the, the new characters so far? Frankie, who's played by Paget Brewster, and Keith, played by Elroy Potashnik. I mean, I thought Paget Brewster was great. I yeah, think I I, that too. character is fun and interesting, especially because... Like, for my money, like, I'm a little tired of Britta, like, Britta in everything and everyone kind of constantly <laughs> being on, like, how she's the worst and stuff. It's just, like, it, I'm pretty tired of that. And I feel like they took a lot of that negativity that used to be directed at Pierce and now it's just directed at Britta instead yeah. of the both of them. And, and it's, I don't know, it kind of bums me out. Like, it's not my favorite part of the show. Well, who can, who can absorb it? You know, she can absorb it, which is what makes it funny, I think. I don't, I, like, know? I just don't love it. Like, I, I... I'm just somebody who's much more prone to comedy about people who all really like each other. And yeah. for a group of people who really like each other, that's not how I would spend my time. Like, I wouldn't, if someone was that mean to me or constantly accusing me of being the worst, that wouldn't be how I thought my, that's not how I want my friends to treat me. Do you know right. what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. if this is like the gang and sometimes they all <laughs> hate you and are really mean to you and think all the things you're passionate about are stupid and worthless, like, you should find a new group of people to hang out with. Like, that's a little bit sad. Um, and I think with Pierce, we had this idea that Pierce had just no other options. But Britta, right. it seems like, you know, you're at a college, like, other people, we see her join other clubs and stuff. Um, but I think <laughs> having Paget Brewster's character as somebody who is, like, not wacky, Right. Like that's her thing is like how by the book she is, which is its own form of wackiness in the community universe. But I thought it was fun. I thought that was like a defined character. I thought her interactions with Abed really brought out parts of that character that we don't see that much anymore because he doesn't have his sidekick. Mm -hmm. I just love it. It Just week for week and scene by scene is an example of how every moment of a show creates its own context and you can roll with it if you're willing to. 
the, I mean, the, the tonal shifts in any given episode are pretty amazing if you stand back from them. And the way that it goes from being very light and wacky to being sort of almost like an existential crisis going on, often through Abed, but other characters as sure. well. It's, it's very, very hard to navigate that line without seeming awkward or like you're just being arty for the sake of artiness. Right. I think it's it's very impressive to me to have a sitcom that can kind of have characters ask the question like, but what is real? Without wanting to be like, ugh, get away from me, right? <laughs> like that's like such a dorm room, like pass la hookah, let's have more ideas, right? Like that's such an obnoxious way to think about things. And yet on that show, when they have sort of moments of crisis or identity, it feels earned and relevant and powerful. Well, and that and also the fact that, you know, it's uh, – if you're going to ask collegiate sort of questions, what better place to ask than in a college? Sure. You know, Although like, I, so that's sort of built in like, for me. It doesn't seem that college to me, by and large. <laughs> yeah, it's like, kind of like, by the way, we're at a college. It's but... more akin yes, to a workplace yes. comedy, I feel like, than a, than a college set show. Like, I would compare it, is... it more to... 30 Rock than I would to Felicity. My go-to comparison has been Gilligan's Island ever since I interviewed Harmon a few years ago, and he cited that unironically as a model for the show. And he said, like, <laughs> yeah, basically that... the college is the island. And just like on Gilligan's <laughs> Island, there could be, like, astronauts, Martians, and the Beatles showing up, and they build a bamboo highway, but somehow they can't make a raft to get off the island. Sure. And you just bu- you just buy it somehow. And, yeah. like, somehow they, Lovey, uh, you know, and, and Marianne have enough clothes to last them, like, six years, even though it was only a four-hour tour. And you just roll with it. And and the, the community is, the, the, the college is that way, too, and I just love it. I love it. They, they're constantly discovering new buildings and secret rooms, and it's just, it's nuts. It's like Snoopy's doghouse. I would say the one show I wish I could pair it with if I had, like, a magical TV schedule for all time is The Middleman. <laughs> because they were both, like, very reference-heavy, but you could still thoroughly enjoy it without getting any of the references, right? So, like, I'm not yes. super what's familiar. The, what's with, the premise of The Middleman? The Middleman is about, like, a recent college graduate, overeducated, underemployed, doesn't kind of kind of doesn't know what to do with her life, and she winds up working for this, like, sci-fi spy organization, basically, yeah. and, like, battling, like, alien elements, and um, it's funny and <laughs> You look and really poppy. excited about oh, that. Oh, so good. I loved that show so much. But there were, like... You know, the next day there would be on, I believe, a live journal. This is, I'm dating myself for how long ago this show is on. Um, but like a list of all the references. And it's, you know, I'm not like a big Star Trek person. So anything that's a reference to Star Trek, I'm probably not going to get. A lot of like 80s B action movies, that's just not my wheelhouse. I'm not picking up on those. You know, that's the mark of a good story is that you don't have to catch everything to still get a lot out of it. So I feel like on Community, there's tons of references to things that I don't even know are references and that I'm missing. And I still find the story really compelling. And I think those shows together have a lot of those. If that if one of those shows tickles you, the other one will as well. I wish that actually now that I think about it, that they could have put the show on Fox on Sunday nights with the animation block. Mm, I think sorta. it might have fit in there. I could see that. It's got, I mean, it does have that sort of, of all the- that uh, Simpsons vibe. I was going to say, yeah. of all the live action shows that have tried to borrow from The Simpsons, I think Community might have done the best job overall. Let's take some listener questions. Thanks, Margaret. This week, we've got a question from Emily. It seems whenever critics and the public in general discuss well-written TV, it's taken as a given that The Wire is the best written show of all time. I love The Wire and think it's extremely well-written, but I'm a little annoyed that The Sopranos is not considered the standard for well-written TV. Can you tell me why The Wire is declared the best, but The Sopranos isn't? I don't know that that's really true, though. I think it depends on who you ask. Yeah, I mean, I, Not I to mean, quibble with the question. No, I feel but, like every week it's like, let yeah. Margaret deny the premise of her question. <laughs> <laughs> like, sorry, yeah. Emily. No, yeah. I agree. Look, obviously when people talk about best shows ever, why, The Wire is immediately 
like on everyone's short list. I feel like I it's pretty evenly split, I think, when I think of just what the consensus is. I think smart people can disagree between the Sopranos and the Wire. What do you get what do you guys think? Do you have like could you pick one? I think between the Sopranos uh, and the Wire? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I, I uh, in the Vulture Drama Derby, I uh, n- I very narrowly chose the Wire over the Sopranos. So narrowly that mm. in fact, I originally chose the Sopranos yeah, and I, I changed reading, my mind. Yeah. And and chose and picked the wire over it and and uh, I had to you know like somehow it made it online and people were confused but that's how close it was for me <laughs> but my pick would be Deadwood but uh, you know I'm an outlier in that respect but yeah then, my pick would be Mad Men yeah yeah and, and Mad Men is up there but then and you Deadwood know, is up there for me too it's not like we're actually really vehemently disagreeing like no. I think on any given day one of us could be swayed by like a PowerPoint presentation or something. (laughs) It's also like, how do you carry it in your heart? Like if somebody told me, Margaret, I have bad news. You can never rewatch The Sopranos. It'd be like, well... Okay. Yeah. But if someone's like, you can never rewatch Deadwood, I'm like, oh, my precious Deadwood. <laughs> but I love it, right? If it's like, you can never rewatch Mad Men, it's like, I'm going to lose my job. Yeah. Right? <laughs> like, like, there's, you know, I. I can have like deep admiration and respect for The Wire, which I do. But for my money, I'd rather watch Homicide. Well, I also think there's a and and we've talked about this 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 sort of drama bias, you know. Like I think there's a tendency to automatically go to the dramas when we talk about things being well written. But there are some comedies. There are so many comedies that are so well written in the past and on the in the present. Just I was just looking at the most recent episode of Bob's Burgers, and that thing is a well-oiled machine, the likes of which we haven't seen since The Simpsons season four or five. I mean, that's that's yeah, how I many think... cylinders they're firing on at once. And Justified, I think, is extraordinarily well-written. And that show is so much fun that we tend to think of it as being light, yeah. you know, like compared to something like The Wire. Sure. I also think that like, if I'm putting it together like a time capsule of best written, whatever, like Enlightened is in there for me, too. There oh, are yeah. episodes of Enlightened where it's just like, holy like, I just didn't ever think a TV show would get me like this or that, like, there could be something like this precious and, like, beautifully articulated and sad and beautiful. Like, it's such a treasure to me. But so is, like, you know, Wonder Falls is a show that, like, helped me deeply, yeah. like, orient myself in my life, right? So, like, I is it better than The Wire? Like, that's sort of a weird comparison. But I don't, like, it's more important to me than The Wire. I, I feel like there's a tendency to declare things well-written, well-directed, and so forth based on how sort of officially ambitious they are. And, and you know, that rules out things that are maybe a little bit lighter, like something like a like the Seinfeld we don't necessarily think of as being well-written, but it's masterfully structured. Like just architecturally sure. okay. an amazing show. And that's part of it too. And, and ultimately it comes down to what is good writing, what is good direction, what is good acting for that particular show. And I always think of that Roger Ebert explanation of why he could give like – four stars to 2001 A Space Odyssey and also four stars to Lethal Weapon. And the answer is, like, the question for him is, how good is it as an example of the thing that is aspiring to be? You know? I also think there's, like, a intense cultural bias to take stories about middle-aged white men as serious stories and stories about people who aren't middle-aged white men as something other than a serious story. Yeah. I'm not saying that The Sopranos isn't good. Obviously, The Sopranos is good. But I think somewhat lesser shows wind up coasting on that and getting further with that idea like sort of that inherent cultural acceptance yes, that other shows have to really fight for. And the movies do it too. I mean, sure. that's why that's why there hasn't been a Best Picture winner that was a comedy since 1970-frickin'-7, Annie Hall. That's how long it's been. That's how, that's how we devalue comedies in this country. It's kind of appalling. But that's a whole other rant. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, The Sopranos is not as good as Annie Hall. Is that what the argument is? I would agree. <laughs> <laughs> 
I guess it depends which day you ask me. And I happen to have Marshall McLuhan right here. Yeah. I get the desire to make lists of things. And certainly we're all part of that culture, um, if not leading aspects right. of it, yes. I guess. <laughs> we're the problem. Um, but that said, like, I... Yeah. I, I can only speak for myself, but like I write about TV because I really love watching TV and thinking about TV and TV is a big part of my life. And I care about my shows a lot. And I the way that they sort of shape my ethics and ideas and the way I like navigate everything is important to me. <laughs> and so it's fun to make lists because it's fun to think about these shows and it's fun to write about them and talk about them and have other people say like, oh, wow, you know, like I also loved Veronica Mars or like, oh, I didn't think anyone else remembered watching that reality show Bug Juice, but like I really loved that show. <laughs> like, I also really loved that show, you know? Yeah. So it's I always... basically like feeling like you're not alone. Sure. <laughs> I mean, Absolutely. <laughs> wow. What a treat. <laughs> oh, my God. A moment of non-loneliness. Thanks, television. <laughs> All right, guys. Thanks so much. (laughs) That felt like an ending. That was nice. That was really nice. Well, that's it for this week's Vulture TV podcast. Please let us know what you think of the show. You'll find us on Twitter at Vulture. And you can email us any questions or comments at tvquestions at vulture.com. Our producer is Henry Malofsky. Our senior producer is Laura Mayer. Andy Bowers is our executive producer. The Vulture TV podcast is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. And if you're on iTunes, remember to leave us a rating or review so other people can find the show. I'm Gazella Mommy, and you can find me on Twitter at Gazellephant. I'm Matt Zoller Sites, and you can find me on Twitter, shockingly, at Matt Zoller Sites. I'm Margaret Lyons, and you can find me on Twitter at Marge in Charge. You can catch us all here again next week. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.